Please give your full attention to God's word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Some wise person once said to me that a good test for the health and strength of your marriage is to wallpaper a room together. I think we actually tried that once and my marriage survived it. On a related note, when I do premarital counseling with a young couple that's all excited about getting married, they're often surprised that I spend one full session on how to handle the family finances. At that point in their relationship, they can't believe that that's really going to be an issue. They love each other so much. How could money cause any friction in their relationship? But they're always surprised to find out how big of a test of their relationship, the way that they handle their family money can be. Well, for a congregation of God's people, I don't think that there is a more effective test of our fellowship and our love for one another than a building project. A building project includes both wall coverings and major finances. So how are we doing? And I ask that seriously. The Lord has tested us over this past year. I don't know a single congregation that's gone through a building project together that hasn't had its love for one another seriously and deeply tested. We need our love to be tested. We need that, just like we know, need our sanctification in general to be tested, to show whether it's real or not. In John chapter 13, our Lord Jesus said to us, beginning in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Understand the import of what he's saying there. That the world is going to know, other Christians are going to know whether 
we are really Christians, whether we are really born again, whether we are really regenerated by the Holy Spirit, whether we really trust in the gospel, if we love one another. If that love is missing, then outsiders have every right to question whether we really believe the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you remember that description of the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, describing the vitality of that early church? And it describes it in this way, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to their fellowship. That is a brief definition of a healthy, vibrant church. Devoted to the word of God and devoted to loving one another well. As we come here in Romans to chapter 12, we come to a turning point in this, one of the very important books of the New Testament. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are Paul's basically his, his doctoral thesis, his, his in-depth treatment of the gospel, the deep theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when he comes to chapter 12, he then shifts to the implications of the gospel. If all that I have taught you is true about how we are saved, how we are reconciled to God, how we have eternal life, if all of this is true, how then should you live? How then should you live? And so in the beginning of chapter 12, the first two verses, he says, well, obviously then your whole life is a sacrifice to God. Offer up your life as a sacrifice to God in thanksgiving for the sacrifice of Christ that's been made on your behalf. And then in verses 3 through 8, he talks about serving together. Talks about how God has gifted all of us in different ways so that we can be interdependent as we serve Christ together as a fellowship of believers. That's verses 3 through 8. And then verses 9 through 21, the section that we just read, is it looks at first like just a hodgepodge of different instructions given by Paul, practical direction that Paul gives. But if you look carefully, the theme that ties all of it together is loving one another well. And I was struck as I studied this week to catch the parallel between what Paul does here in Romans 12, where he's drawing out the implications of our faith in Christ, of believing in the gospel and how it affects our life, and how that leads into serving together as an inter interdependent body of believers, the importance of love being at the core of that. That should remind you of another very well-known section of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13, where in chapter 12, again, at more length, he develops that idea that we're all gifted differently by the Lord so that we can serve interdependently. And then you get to chapter 13, where Paul interrupts his teaching on serving together for the sake of the gospel, with the gifts that God has given, and he stops and says, but you know, if you serve faithfully, if you serve well, if you serve effectively, and yet you do not have love for one another, it's all like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That service together is meaningless if it's not permeated with the kind of love that comes from being born again in Jesus Christ. 
We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. That's a standard. That's a measurement. At the end of chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In this short series of sermons that we're doing, we're looking at the four marks of an oak of righteousness. That phrase, oak of righteousness, comes from Isaiah 61, and it also comes from our church's vision statement. If we are to, if that's the goal that we're all working towards, is that we would become oaks of righteousness in the sight of the Lord. And we have said that's a picture of spiritual maturity. What are the four marks? We talked last week about worship, that we must grow to worship as God teaches us to worship. This week we look at this love, that love is a mark one of the four marks of an oak of righteousness. We must, mature Christians must love one another well. And so how do we do that? What does that look like? What does a gospel-driven, grace-driven fellowship look like in a healthy, vibrant, vital church? Well, the passage begins in verse 9 by saying, let love be genuine. Literally, that means without hypocrisy, without play acting. Let love be from the heart. Let it be authentic. Let it be the real thing within the church of Jesus Christ. The gospel must produce an otherworldly kind of love if that gospel is truly believed in a fellowship of believers. In this passage, I find four different things that should make our love for one another stand out from the world. The world should be able to look at the church and see there's something supernatural about the way that these people love each other. The first element that you see in the passage is unconditional commitment. Unconditional commitment to one another. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. In the original Greek, that's the word Philadelphia. Love one another with brotherly affection, with brotherly love. In other words, love each other like you belong to the same family. Think about the implications of that. Love each other like you belong to the same family. God is your father by grace. Jesus Christ is your older brother by grace. All other professing believers are your brothers and sisters by grace. And the blood of Christ that has formed this family is far stronger than the blood that contains the DNA that binds you to your own physical family. Like a family, you're not here by merit. God has placed you in his family. And you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. We belong to one another. If I would have picked my family, I may not have picked the family that I received, but they are my family. And my commitment to them is not based on their merit or my merit, it's based on where God has placed us. Deep relationships can only develop when you have a deep commitment to one another. And you trust one another in that commitment. 
when two people can say to each other, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay here and work this thing out. When I think about the kind of offenses that have happened in my personal family and within my siblings, with my children, when I think of the kind of ways in which we've offended one another, like normal families do, those same kind of offenses would split 100 churches because churches don't have the same commitment that my family has to each other. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and our commitment must actually be greater than our commitment to our families. Are you as committed to your church family, both locally, this body of believers, if you're a part of it, or to whatever body of believers you're committed to, we're all committed to the worldwide body of Christ. Is your commitment the same or greater, actually greater, than your commitment to your physical family? Unconditional commitment to one another. That's the kind of love that the blood of Christ produces. The second characteristic in this passage is unconditional acceptance of one another. Unconditional acceptance of one another. There is no hierarchy at the foot of the cross. If we believe the gospel, then we know that we are all redeemed sinners. And anything good in our lives has only been put there by the grace of God alone. In Romans 15, verse 7, Paul says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Drive that verse deep into your memory. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. How do you explain to Christ that you will not accept someone that he shed his blood on the cross for? What brother or sister is it that you can say, I cannot accept that person even though Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins? Of course, this doesn't mean that we accept one another's sins. We accept one another as sinners saved by grace. But we don't accept one another's sins. That's the world's version of acceptance. And we know that it leads to great harm and destruction. And that's not love. It's not love to say, I'm going to accept you and your sins. I'm going to keep my mouth shut while you harm yourself and other people with your sin. That's not loving. But I do accept you. Paul tells us that we must go beyond, though, mere acceptance. Because look at verse 10. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor to one another. To be lifting up, to exalting other people. You know, before we came to Christ, before we were born again, our whole goal in life was to exalt ourselves. Usually at the cost of others. But that's the change that he's wrought in our hearts, is that now we are called to lift up others, to build up others, to exalt them. Outdo one another in showing honor. In Philippians chapter 2, 
Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Think about the implications of that. To look around at your brothers and sisters in the church and consider them of more significance than yourselves. That's not denying the reality of flaws and sins in their life. It's saying, I know myself. I know my sin. I know my motives. I know what drives me. I don't, I'm not allowed to judge their heart. So I am always going to see my sin as greater than their sin because I have a greater perspective on my own sin and I can't know what's going on inside their actions. I'm always going to treat them as being more significant than myself. Paul bases that, the ability to do that in the gospel again. Picking up in Philippians chapter 2. That was verse 3 that I just read to you. But he goes on to say in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." That's the love of Christ. Love one another the same way that Christ has loved you. Lay your life down to exalt them, to build them up, to benefit them. Verse 16, back in chapter 12, Paul says again, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Pride is the enemy of our love and unity in the church. And it is an evidence of genuine love in our midst that we seek to exalt not just one another, but especially the lowly. Not the lowly in God's eyes, but the lowly in the world, eyes of the world. The despised, the rejected. We're, the test of our love is how well do we love those people that the world calls lowly? the less able, the less attractive, the less wealthy, the less cool. Those that are considered inferior by the world. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We accept one another because there's no hierarchy at the foot of the cross. This must be a place, the church must be a place where these worldly measurements of worth have no place. The gospel is what unites us, not our race, not our politics, not our social status. What unites us in this place, in this family, is not our blood, not our DNA, what unites us is our faith in Jesus Christ, the lordship of Christ over all of our lives. What unites us is our biblical theology and worldview. There is where we find our unity. Not the color of our skin or our age group or our worldly attainments. And so as a test of your own love 
for your brothers and sisters, ask yourself, how many associations, how many relationships do I have with those that the world considers lowly? How's our church doing? Are we projecting some sort of standard that you must meet by the world standards in order to be part of our fellowship? Or does the world look at us and say, you know what, there's something special going on in that place because they love people that are unlovable in the world. Accepting one another unconditionally as Christ has accepted us prepares us to love even our enemies, even those who hate us, even those who abuse us, even those who persecute us. There's a whole section of this passage that deals with that. I'll just read again verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Even our enemies. I mean, it's one thing to say that your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're to, to look to their interests first and to consider them as more significant than yourselves. But Paul says you even have to do that to your enemies. Only respond to them in spite of all of their, 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 their abuse, all of their mistreatment, all of their persecution. You are looked you're to look in your response to bless them, to do what's best for them. That's what love demands. To do what is best for them in your response, never to retaliate. In the church, we train ourselves to put others first and to love people not for what they can do for us, but for what we can do for them. To look at the lowly, and even our enemies, and say, there, but for the grace of God go I. The grace of God is put, all the good that is in my life is there by the grace of God alone. And so I can look at my enemy and say, there's where I would be, except for the grace of God. Jesus talked about the difference between the love that the gospel produces and the love of the world in a very powerful way in Luke chapter 6. Listen to what he said. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those to, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. That's the love of Christ. That's the love that saved us. That's the love that must characterize our fellowship. We are to be a warm, accepting church. We're never going to put a sign out front that says... We are a welcoming church because that means something different in our culture, unfortunately. But any repentant sinner who comes seeking Christ by the leading of the Holy Spirit, any repentant sinner who comes seeking Christ must be warmly accepted into our midst, no matter where they're coming from. Which brings us to how we respond once they come to us, which is the next characteristic of this love that Paul is describing, and that's that we share one another's burdens. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. 
Literally, that would be translated, participate in the needs of the saints. In other words, don't just write a check. But participate in the needs of your brothers and sisters in your spiritual family. The word comfort in the Bible, the Greek word means to come alongside of. You can't write a check and come alongside somebody. You need to enter into their lives. You need to come alongside of them in order to give comfort. If we are part of the same spiritual family, then we belong to one another, and your problems are my problems, and my problems are your problems, and we need to always have that attitude. In Acts chapter 4, again, describing the vitality and the love of the early church, it says, All the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. That's not a description of a political theory or a social economic theory. That's a description of the love of the church. That my possessions are given to me for the benefit of my brothers and sisters. They're not mine. They're placed under my authority as a steward from God and I'm to use them to build up others. And the testimony of the early church was there was no needy person among them. Is that the testimony of our church? That's a test. That there are no needy persons among us. And the emphasis there is on physical need, material need, worldly need. There were no needy persons among them. The only caveat that the rest of the New Testament gives to that is in 2 Thessalonians 3, where Paul says the only type of person only brother or sister in the church that should be needy in this world is the one who's unwilling to work, unwilling to attempt to bear their own burden. Beyond that, no believer should ever be needy when it comes to the needs of this world. That's a testimony of the church. In verse 15, Paul says we must go on beyond just giving to our brothers and sisters he says we must enter into the experience of their suffering and the experience of their celebration. He says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. A church family is a place where there should be deep, genuine empathy. And deep fellowship happens when you're willing to enter in to the sufferings and the celebrations of others. Are you willing to do that with your brothers and sisters? To enter into their celebrations and their sufferings. To be there alongside of them while they go through this, for good or for bad. I've had on many different occasions the opportunity to sit at the bedside in a hospital or in a hospice setting with a family while a loved one dies. And I'm kind of a private person. And I always have to struggle with the feeling that I don't belong there. That this is a very intimate thing. That this is a thing that only physical families should really go through together. That I'm an outsider, that I don't belong there. But if we're, I'm there with believers, this is my family. And I do belong there. Matter of fact, the word of God tells me to be there. To come alongside them. And I will tell you, 
that to sit there while a loved one dies, with people while a loved one of theirs dies, is to enter in to the deepest grief and suffering that you'll witness this side of, of death yourself. And I remember saying, I've, I've used the phrase just recently, I used the phrase that that experience is both a privilege and a heart-rending experience. But it, that heart-rending experience, something I didn't have to, you know, if I was part of the world, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be there. I tell you, I would never be there if it wasn't for Christ. I wouldn't have to go through that heart-rending experience, but I would miss out on the privilege and the deepening of the fellowship that is formed, the bonding that happens when you come alongside someone who's suffering and grieving. At the end of verse 13, Paul says in particular, seek to show hospitality. We, we use hospitality in a lot of different ways, and we sometimes use it in a very general sense. But hospitality actually in Scripture is actually kind of a rare word. It only shows up about five times in the New Testament. And it means something very specific. This is a different way of coming alongside of and sharing the burdens of others. Hospitality literally means the love of strangers. And strangers in the context of the church. In other words, people who are either seeking God, or who are brothers and sisters in the Lord, who come into your life, how do you treat them? How hard do you make it for outsiders who are believers to enter into your circle of fellowship? Hospitality was very important in the first century. In other words, remember how Jesus and his disciples, and particularly Paul and his associates, depended upon hospitality, the love of strangers, in order to spread the gospel. The gospel would have never gone to the Roman Empire if God's people were not showing hospitality. In other words, here's Paul and all of his associates. These people had never met them before. They come to town. They receive them into their homes. They feed them. They take care of them and enable them to do their ministry of the gospel. The spread of the gospel depended upon hospitality. That's true for us today, too. As people come seeking the truth, as people come seeking repentance from their sin, as they, people, brothers and sisters come from other places, how warmly do we accept them into our midst and we care for them and come alongside them and share their burdens? The love of Christ is known by its unconditional acceptance and the sharing of the burdens of all our brothers and sisters. We all have different personalities and gifts, and I get really frustrated by reading hospitality books sometimes because they're all written by extroverts. <laughs> um, and, and they set standards for what hospitality looks like in terms of inviting other people into your life that I just end up feeling all beat up and a total failure when I read those books. But I think that's the beautiful thing. When you study the scriptures, you find out that Everybody, every Christian, going back to 1 Corinthians 12 and the beginning of, of Romans 12, we all have different gifts. We all have different temperaments, all different personalities. We all have different and what I call bandwidths for relationships. I know people that have huge bandwidths for relationships. Mine's about this big, you know. And, and, but the important question is, is are you involved in the lives of other people? Whatever your bandwidth is, are you being faithful within that bandwidth? Are you accepting others? Are you involved in other people's lives? Are you coming alongside people? 
Are you being faithful? Are you showing the love of the gospel in your life? That brings me to the last one, the most difficult one. The last sign of genuine love in a body of believers, which is continual peacemaking. Verse 18, Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That is so hard, especially in the middle of a building project. It's so hard to live peaceably with all. But that's what it means to be a part of a committed, vital, loving, spiritual body. Is to be committed to peacemaking, pursuing it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. As Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another, particularly in this case, how you make peace with one another. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, make every effort to live in peace. The writer of Hebrews is acknowledging that it takes really hard work. Hard work that none of us want to do, but we have to do to be faithful, to love the way that we've been taught to love. You see, the church is not an entirely safe place. We want the church to be an accepting, warm, welcoming place for all repentant sinners, but it's not a safe place. And I, you know, I hear people say all the time, you know, Christians in the church hurt each other far more deeply, far more extensively than people out in the world do. My, my friends at work or my neighbors, they don't hurt me anything like my people in my church do. And I hate to hear that because what it sounds like they're saying is that we don't in the church don't love as well as the world loves. But that's not true. The difference is, is that we have already warmly accepted one another. We've come alongside one another. We've opened up ourselves to one another. We've come vulnerable to one another. We've made a commitment to one another. So when you hurt me in that setting, you're going to hurt me far deep, more deeply than my coworker or my neighbor is going to hurt me. The reason we hurt each other more in the church is because we're a spiritual family. Because of our love and acceptance for one another, it goes far deeper than it does out there in the world. And it will happen. Any gathering of sinners is going to result in conflict, in pain, disagreement, mistreatment. The test of the love of Christ is how do we handle it? What do we do with it? Do we write each other off? Do we walk away from each other? Do we swing a wide berth around each other after it's happened? Or do we work at making peace? Do we pursue one another? We must be committed to peace if the gospel is true. This must be a place where relationships get fixed by the grace of God. Because we are all about reconciliation here. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what he calls the gospel ministry. A gospel ministry, if this is a gospel ministry, then it's all about reconciliation based upon how God has reconciled us to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. But I do want to point out that Paul is realistic here. That in a fallen world, sinners, even redeemed sinners, sometimes peace can't be found, even in the church. He gives two qualifiers, if possible. 
If possible, be at peace with everyone. He's recognizing that it's not always possible. And I think there he's alluding to the fact that there's a difference, as, as my brother Owen talks about, there's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. That sometimes we keep peace, but we don't make peace. In other words, we overlook sins that need to be addressed. We overlook offenses that need to be addressed. We compromise holiness in order to keep a superficial peace. Or we compromise truth in order to keep a superficial peace. What Paul is saying is that because you're committed to holiness too, and you're committed to the truth also, sometimes that means that you're not going to compromise to bring about a superficial peace. You're going to keep working for real peace, real reconciliation, insofar as you're able to. And that's the second qualifier that Paul gives, so far as it depends on you. What Paul is saying there is it takes two to tango. It takes both sides working for peace, for peace to happen. If one side sinfully refuses to work for peace, you can't create it on your own. You can't change the heart of that other person. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not your job. And so as far as it depends on you, the question then becomes, have you done all that you can do to be at peace in these relationships with your brothers and sisters in the church? Have you done all that you can do? All that the Lord would expect of you. Have you made every effort to make peace? I always say it this way. Is the ball out of your court? Making peace. It's like an intense tennis match. Is the ball out of your court? Or do you need to hit it into the other person's court to see if the Holy Spirit's going to lead them to hit it back? Reconciliation, forgiveness, is the greatest mark of genuine love in a body of believers in any Christian relationship. Let me close by reading from John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Back when I was a new Christian and started going to Christian camps, we'd sit around the campfire and we'd sing that really dippy old song that said, they will know we are Christians by our love. It was a tune that made it dippy, not the, not the message. The message is legitimate. They will, it's biblical. They will know we are Christians by our love. It's a love that stays committed in all circumstances to our brothers and sisters in our spiritual family. It's a love that accepts others the same way that we have been accepted at the cross. It's a love that sees the burdens of our brothers and sisters as our own burdens. It's a love that works hard at making peace based in the cross. We are coming to the Lord's table now. We celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly as a time to keep our accounts short. A time to confess any sins against God that the Holy Spirit has made us aware of. And to confess any sins against our brothers and sisters or our enemies that the Holy Spirit has made us aware of. And so I just want to ask the question, by this definition of love... Are you loving others the way that Christ has loved you?
that's come repentant. And if we come repentant, we come joyfully to celebrate the reconciliation with God we have through Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. The things that this passage demand of us are impossible to us in and of ourselves. It's a work that the Holy Spirit must produce. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we have failed. And now as we come to the table of the Lord, I pray that the joy of the Lord would fill our hearts as we realize that even the ways in which we have failed to love have been forgiven because Christ died for them at the cross. Let us celebrate that together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.